Thank you, Rick. Indeed, it was an email. Uh, it was an email that recently deepened the relationship between our rector and me. I had offered him an additional insight after one of his sermons. Uh, we're always careful when we do this, of course, <laughs> uh, lest it backfire. Uh, yeah, backfire, I thought, into the appearance of correction or even worse, haughtiness. Uh, in this case, it backfired. Uh, not because Rick didn't love the insight, because he did, it backfired because he replied, why don't you preach on this, on 226? <clears throat> it is indeed an honor, an honor to provide the homily to Wilmore Anglican Church today. Uh, thanks to all y'all for assimilating the Sheltons in the last two years, uh, indeed. Uh, since we've come to Kentucky, this is certainly one of the brightest of bright spots. Ash Wednesday was this week. Today is the first Sunday in Lent. These 40 days are fundamental to a rhythm, a rhythm of the intellectual and the spiritual life of the church. Intellectually, we remember the life of Christ. He arrived in Advent, and his ministry launched an epiphany, and now he suffers this testing in the wilderness today. Before he'll move on to Calvary on Good Friday, entering the late hours of Saturday night in anticipation of something, a dawn of Easter. We remember these things in Lent. Spiritually, we participate in this pattern of Christ's life. We light candles in hope at Advent, and we wrestle with the significance of God present in Epiphany, and we soberly turn inward during Lent in preparation of the coming realization of the glory of the Lord on the great day of the resurrection. But we are not there yet. We are in Lent. In Lent, we turn inward. The lectionary today tells us why. Our sins. Genesis 2 highlighted how creation was good, even with its command, thou shalt not eat of one particular tree. Genesis 3 relates that fall from goodness. Romans 5 describes the effect of the fall. Sin comes into the world. Death follows sin. And death extends to all. Psalm 51 captures the sentiment, the suffering of sin. Have mercy on me, O God. Behold, I was brought forth in wickedness, and in sin even my mother conceived me. Lent is a time of self-examination. Genesis 3 is a sort of low point, uh, understatement in Scripture. Jesus' wilderness suffering actually threatens his potential success. What if he says yes? For a while in Lent, we join this somberness experiencing it on a personal level by confrontation of our own sins. This, friends, is the downer season. Necessary to frame the victorious season that is ahead. 
Lent is also a time to sacrifice material, immaterial, a mental, spiritual, major, minor, to give something up. For us, this enhances the suffering, the aspect of the season for us, but also helps us to identify with the suffering of Jesus. The Catholic tradition historically has surrendered meat. On Friday, uh, depending on where you grew up, there was that day in late elementary when you turn to a classmate and says, why do they keep serving fish on Friday? The Nigerian Anglican Bishop Odedeji has urged Christians this Lent to use the time for intensive prayer and biblical discourse. Last week, even Pope Francis called for the world to listen to Jesus in this time of Lent. Such inwardness, attention to our own sin, is part of the spiritual rhythm of the life of the church. And Ash Wednesday, last week, we offered back the words in the litany, Have mercy on me, O Lord. And as we received the ashes to our forehead, we were humbled as these words were spoken to us. Remember, you are dust, and to dust you will return. Now, our culture, evangelical culture, really does the celebration and the rejoicing moments. Well, in Lent, we remember how Ecclesiastes 3, 4 advises us of the need of the other. There is a time to dance and a time to mourn. This is our Lent. There is a wealth of doctrinal features in the passages today. It is a theologian's dream. Uh, if it feels like class, well, like God's grace, today's class tuition is free. <laughs> Our Sunday night life group has become uh, regularly curious, even a little obsessed, on wondering why the lectionary designers chose this passage or that passage. It's a good exercise. It helps us to appreciate and make the connections. This week's combination is brilliant. The Genesis story's cause leads to Psalm 51 effects and leads to the Romans' solution. Original sin here conditions are lent. We meet Christ here as sinners. Now, if I were to highlight some features from today's passage beyond the homily focus, I would point out these four. Notice Adam is created to care for the garden in 2.15. Work is natural, normal for us. It is good to work before the thistles and the thorns. Secondly, the presence of the tree of knowledge in the garden of good and evil is there to prove Adam and Eve's faithfulness. It is hard to imagine why God is doing this. It is a risk for their disobedience and the consequence of it. But it is there. He chooses to prove their faith. Psalm 51 is a sober, a delightful psalm. Uh, Nancy DeClay Valford in the Nicot volume calls it as possessing a timeless quality, a point of reference for the faithful to reflect on their own acts of unfaithfulness to God generation after generation. The psalm heading, of course, contextualizes for us. David, after stealing Bathsheba and terminating her husband, makes confrontation of his own sin before God. 
For generations, Christians have repented to this one psalm more than any other. It gives us words for remorse. It gives us words of forgiveness. We need these. Augustine comments on Psalm 51, Let each person heed the greatness of the wound, but not despair of the majesty of the physician. Verse 17 is the perfect verse for Lent and for every revival. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I want to focus on the Matthew 4 wilderness passage. I don't know if you remember your baptism, but if you were at Jesus' baptism, you would not soon forget. The heavens opened and the Father declared, this is my beloved Son. The Holy Spirit descends on him. Immediately, Jesus is driven with a sense of force into the wilderness. Mark's gospel almost sounds violent to use the word cast out into the desert. And with Matthew provides a sense of compulsion and necessity for this great act of obedience to take place. This experience is the first mile in Jesus' ministry journey for three and a half years. For us, this testing or temptation passion is also the launch of our Lenten season, the first Sunday in Lent. And it offers a centrality for us to this season. I offer Two additional insights on Matthew 4, one on the work of Christ and one on the person of Christ. Both are foundational to the Christian hope in the midst of Lenten brokenness. First, the work of Christ in the wilderness. Ready? In this chart, There's a parallel between the temptation in paradise and the temptation in the wilderness. See the headers. Class, what Satan says to Eve, the first column, is akin to what Satan says to Jesus, the third column. What Eve ignores, second column, is what Jesus does not, God's instruction, the fourth column. Follow with me. From left to right. First, Satan said to Eve, Did God really say you shall not eat from the tree of the garden? Really? Eve saw the tree was good for food to be eaten for the first time in disobedience. Satan said to Jesus, If you're the Son of Man, command these stones to become loaves of bread, it would be good for food. Jesus responded, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, something that Eve ignored, the command of God, thou shalt not eat. Secondly, Satan said to Eve, you will not surely die, despite God's claim. While it was not good to eat by God's command, she saw it was, in fact, a delight to the eye. Satan said to Jesus, see the delight of ruling these kingdoms if you worship me. Jesus replied to Satan, worship the Lord only, even while Eve idolized the food in self-worship. And third, Satan said to Eve, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Just as God had said, notice the twist of the tempter. Then Eve saw the tree was to be desired to make one wise. 
yet with a new and undesirable condition. Satan said to Jesus, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels to protect you, just as God had said. Notice the twist of the tempter. Jesus responded, don't put the Lord to a foolish test, something Eve had failed to realize. One can see this further encapsulated in 1 John 2.16, the lust of the flesh, food, the lust of the eyes, kingdoms seen, and the pride of life, wise as God. Yet this parallel is not as clear as the one then offered in Romans 5. And what is arguably the greatest parallel and a whole Bible full of parallels, the lowest point in Scripture, that narrative is offset by the great moment in the biblical narrative. It is, in fact, foreshadowed beyond today's lectionary in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush your head. Let me unpack it. The first Adam disobeyed. She took the fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Enter sin and death. Sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and death spread to all. The second Adam obeyed. It is here that Lent begins with suffering, but is loaded with hope. In the wilderness, the descendant of Adam said no, when Adam did not. Enter obedience and life. Much more surely those who received an abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness can exercise dominion in life through one Jesus Christ. There is a parallel between the work of the first Adam and the work of the second Adam. Viewed another way, there's a perpendicular, we don't use this word near enough, between the work and results of the first Adam and the work and results of the second Adam. The parallel and the perpendicular speak of an undoing of Adam's disobedience in the garden. Every theft, murder, pillage, rape, injustice, idolatry, immorality, every addiction, Cutting, brutality, defrauding, every bad in the world finds its theological roots in Adam's fall. Sin extended to every one of us. Then, the second Adam got the same kind of temptation. The same tempter offered the same invitation to the same kind of man. But this man was different. This man was the seed of of the woman come to crush a head. So Jesus said to Satan, no. And when he did, he said it on our behalf. So now, every strength, every fruit of the Spirit, every way of escape, every power is made available to us for us to say no to Satan in a way that the first Adam did not. This is an epic moment in human history. Praise God for the second Adam who takes away the sins of the world and invites us to enter his rest even in Lent. But this also requires Easter, and we are not there yet. We are in Lent. You may know what it's like to have somebody 
do something for you when you feel powerless. My wife's family is full of mechanical and practical skills. I do theological parallels. When I fail at repairing some contraption around the house, I often reach for hope as I utter, Honey, can you fix this? When my in-laws come to visit, I let them fix things. One day in 2016, a new guy in our Sunday school class in Georgia, who later proved to be the world's third largest vendor on eBay, selling over 80,000 used car parts, offered me to swing by his shop to get a new set of tires. Free set of tires. I told him I owed him one. And I was kind of paralyzed when he said, are you kidding? I can't thank you enough for how you teaching Sunday school has changed my life. Mutual inability found remarkable ability in another. I think this lesson, learning the lesson, helped me uh, in 2021, last two years ago, to recognize how a new friend needed a sense of work of worth after he could no longer work. So I said to the former plumber, Luke Bumgardner, come over and tell me how I should uh, turn the wrench and put on this new gasket. It's powerful when one can do for another what one cannot do for themselves. That's Jesus for sinners. So for this, notice how the ministry of Calvary begins in the wilderness and it frames our Lenten fast. The other, the person of Christ. As the first Sunday in Lent points to this passage, it also narrows in for us the identity, the person of Christ. He is Messiah. We know to limit earthly expectations, as Jesus did. But remember, there is a promise to David that his heir would reign, rule forever. And the invitation by Satan to rule over kingdoms, these are not coincidences. Jesus is a king, and his reign has an impact on earth. May it have even more. Those who saw his ministry and baptism had an ancient cultural expectation that we miss. A king would go through certain phases before the people so that they might recognize the one whom they should follow, the one whom God empowers as king over them. This concept may be new to you. A series of events would look something like this. A would-be king would be designated by the prophet, usually by anointing. A would-be king would then demonstrate his worthiness by defeating an enemy of God's people. A would-be king would then be crowned before the people who now get why God chose this one to be king. It's a tripartite pattern of kingly accession, recognizable in Ugaritic, Mesopotamian, Israelite cultures. For those interested, Baruch Halpern, Phil Long have evidenced that in Israel's kings, it's a pattern that's also recognizable in the life of Christ. And when it does, it tells us of a would-be king being identified. And from time to time, professors get to do this. And it always feels a little good when you can cite yourself. (laughs) See Israel's king here. 
The prophet of God anoints the one presented by God. A voice from heaven had declared, this is my beloved son. And the people might even wonder by the Jordan, is this the next king? This is his designation, John the Baptist uh, anointing him. Jesus goes immediately into the wilderness to defeat the great enemy of God and his people, and he continues to defeat the forces of sin and death in his ministry, healing the sick, raising the dead, calming the storm, preaching, teaching, peace, holiness. It was enough for them to wonder, how can this be? Isn't this the carpenter's son? His demonstration. Jesus is then crowned with ironic humiliation. His crown is of thorns. He is struck with a scepter. He is mocked with a royal robe. He hangs under a sign, King of the Jews. This is his coronation. This is our Lent. But even as we turn inward during Lent, and even as we confront our sinfulness with a sense of depression, we know that there is a designated king. A king, y'all, who fights for his people against the enemy and the consequences of that enemy's works that we suffer. This king would reign over our lives like the psalmist seeks. Wash me thoroughly from my wickedness and cleanse me from my sin. King. Seeing Adam and Eve fail in the garden and then seeing Jesus suffer in the wilderness is a reminder of the reality, the power even, of temptation is also a reminder, Rick said on Wednesday night, of our inability. So in Lent, we face in confrontation our sin. This is not entirely an examination, however, from powerlessness or paralyzed inability. It is one, we have that, but now it is one marked by power and victory and authority and love and wonder. We see it in the wilderness for eternal effect. One man's sin was our undoing, and another man's obedience can be our fresh doing. In this season, as you turn inwardly, sacrifice of self, don't forget. Be hard on yourself in a sense, but don't forget to glance at Calvary ahead and the empty tomb. We are not there. Yet we are in Lent. But know that Christ has confronted the devil, sin, and death. Know that the kingship of Christ reigns over the power of the enemy. Martin Luther framed it this way for us. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. In Lent, we confront sin like Psalm 51, but with a wilderness power over sin. Thanks to Jesus alone.